Chris Fleming, and welcome to another episode of Health Affairs This Week, the podcast where health affairs editors and guests talk about health policy news and issues. Today, we're joined once again by Mike Chernow. Mike is the Leonard D. Schaefer Professor of Healthcare Policy and the Director of the Healthcare Markets and Regulation Lab at Harvard Medical School. He also chairs the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, but I should emphasize today he's speaking for himself and not for MedPAC. Mike, welcome back. Chris, it's always nice to talk with you. Well, thank you very much, and likewise on my end. Well, Mike, the last time you were here, about a month ago, uh, you'd written a health affairs forefront piece with Michael McWilliams titled The Case for ACOs, Why Payment Reform Remains Necessary. Uh, One of the things you talked about in that piece uh, was the direct contracting model in Medicare and specifically the global and professional direct contracting model. Uh, At the time you wrote the article, uh, CMS was mulling over its policy on direct contracting. And uh, since then, uh, CMS has announced that it's redesigning the GPTC program, uh, transitioning to something called ACO REACH, uh, with REACH standing for Realizing Equity, Access, and Community Health. And I should mention in passing that a more extreme version of uh, direct contracting, the geographic direct contracting model, which had been paused last year, now appears to be officially dead. Uh, So uh, I'll direct uh, listeners who are interested uh, can go to the CMS site. There's sort of an exhaustive list uh, that's available, actually several forms of detailing sort of the, the, the point by point changes that have been made. But from your perspective, as someone who sort of thinks about payment reform and the sort of the goals that we should be looking for, I'm curious, as you look at this transition, uh, what do you think is important about it? What should listeners know uh, about what's happened? Yeah. So, Chris, big picture, they've done a number of things. They've increased the emphasis on equity. So, for example, the benchmarks now reflect equity related concerns. So they give more money to areas, uh, organizations in areas that um have issues related to equity. They require the organizations to have an equity plan, if you will. So that's one change. They've changed the coding rules. Um, One of the big complaints about payment models and Medicare Advantage plans as well is how risk is coded. And they've changed those rules in ways that limit the ability of organizations to profit from coding. They've changed the benchmark rules in ways that are a bit more favorable to the organization. So the way these benchmarks are set, there's typically a predicted spending minus a discount. And in the out years, they've reduced the discount sum. So that's helpful for participating organizations. And then one of the big set of criticisms that we discussed in our previous piece had to do with the type of organizations that were participating, their governance and their incentives. And what they've done there, they've increased to a 75% requirement for participating providers. And they also have a bunch of monitoring rules. So, for example, they're going to be monitoring the marketing materials from these organizations. They're going to be monitoring disenrollment to Medicare Advantage plans, which is a complicated and controversial part of this whole program. And there's a bunch of other protections in there around, for example, stinting on care delivery and things of that nature. So they've basically taken the criticisms and moved in a direction to reduce the likelihood that the concerns that the critics had would become a reality. You know, to pick up on that last point, uh, I'm we talked and you've sort of uh, answered in, in regard to how this differs from what had gone before, how ACO reach is different from the GPDC. But I'm curious sort of, you know, what uh, differences you see, if any, uh, that remain comparing this new model to other forms of the ACO models. Uh, and then in regards to that, 
you you said this this was meant to address the earlier criticisms you know how well do you think it does that you know what are some of the criticisms that you think uh people might feel that have been unaddressed or or less addressed i'm thinking about it's interesting your earlier piece you talked about maybe not focusing so much on on ownership but focusing on guardrails uh this new approach as you pointed out does seem to have some pretty significant added guardrails uh, so I'm curious, sort of, you know, whether you think uh, or which ones do the job and which ones maybe don't. Yeah, so that's a multi-pronged question, Chris. Let me start with how it differs from ACOs. And notice one of the things they've done is rebranded this as an ACO. And actually, I think that's appropriate. I always thought, as we've said in our earlier piece, that the direct contracting model was more like an ACO than, for example, a Medicare Advantage plan, although Medicare Advantage plans or other private organizations can participate in this model. Relative to other types of ACOs, the two big differences are it's high powered. In other words, there's a lot of risk, um, symmetric risk um, in this model and the cash flows uh, more direct, why it was called direct contracting in the first place. So there's upfront payments and the the money can flow uh, in that way and it can flow to these direct contracting entities. The concerns, well, before I talk about the concerns, This is building on a series of ACO models. They had the pioneer model, then they had the next gen model, then they had the direct contracting model, and now they've had these ACO reach models. And it really is this continuation of a thread to have um, payment models that are population-based that have relatively high symmetric risk. And I think it's important that you have a set of options for organizations that want to bear that type of accountability. And I think this does that. A lot of the criticisms involved who was able to participate as an ACO reach, ACO, or for that matter, a direct contracting entity. And the concern amongst many was that um, organizations such as managed care, Medicare Advantage organizations could participate. In the piece you wrote before, we said that there are some big differences between ACOs, reach or otherwise, direct contracting or otherwise, and the uh, Medicare Advantage program. The biggest in my mind is that in the Medicare Advantage program, beneficiaries enroll, the Medicare Advantage organization, therefore, in some sense, has the beneficiary, and they can go to the providers and say, you need to behave in the following ways, or we will drop you out of our networks. In this case, because the attribution is working through the providers, the Medicare Advantage plans, even if they're participating as a REACH ACO, don't have the ability to do that. Combined with the changes in the governance structure, they have reduced that concern. However, there are still those who believe that allowing these types of Medicare Advantage organizations to participate in this program creates a problem in that these organizations may find ways, one way or another, to use this program to bolster their Medicare Advantage enrollment. And although we probably don't have time to discuss this today, there's a lot of critiques of the Medicare Advantage program, the primary of which is probably that because of coding and a bunch of other reasons, payments are too high in Medicare Advantage. And so the concern is that if you allow Medicare Advantage plans to Uh, increase their enrollment to further siphon people away from fee-for-service, you will be moving people to a sector in Medicare that is more expensive than the traditional fee-for-service sector. And in fact, eventually you will cause a demise of that fee-for-service sector. Now, one response to that is the first thing they should do is fix Medicare Advantage. I'm not going to talk about that now, but they should fix Medicare Advantage. 
The second point is it is harder to shift people to Medicare Advantage, in my opinion, than one might think, given the rules of reach. And by the way, you could have shifted people to Medicare Advantage anyway, even without reach. The Medicare Advantage plans have relationships with providers and can use those relationships to potentially try and induce people to move in the Medicare Advantage plans. So it remains very important to fix Medicare Advantage. It may be that the ACO reach by allowing these organizations to participate could increase enrollment in Medicare Advantage. Although one of the things they have done is they have put in place monitoring to try and protect against that both directly and in looking at marketing materials and a bunch of other behaviors. So the question about have they done enough is a little bit of an empirical question that people like me will answer in years to come, but they have certainly moved in that direction. My personal view is that it is important to have a model like this, a high-powered ACO model, and that the risks that may exist given the guardrails are worth taking to maintain that type of model. And to the extent that this is really a complaint about what's going on in the Medicare Advantage program, I think the first order of business should be to address the Medicare Advantage program and not distort what you would otherwise do in terms of payment reform. That's interesting. I mean, let me actually ask a question from a little bit of a different angle uh, that picks up on this interaction you're talking about with Medicare Advantage and traditional Medicare. You pointed out the the worry that people might, uh, or that organizations that are in both might use this program as a way to lure people into Medicare Advantage. But, you know, we're also Every year, it looks like there are there are more people in Medicare Advantage, and you know we're we're close to maybe more than half coming up. Is is this sort of thing, you know, increasing the uh, as you put it, sort of high powered ACO approach? Is this sort of thing in traditional Medicare necessary if traditional Medicare is going to maintain its status as a viable sort of uh, alternative, a viable competitor to Medicare Advantage? I think this type of payment reform in traditional Medicare is important to support the traditional Medicare program. I think that you need to find ways to make the traditional Medicare program more efficient because if you don't, the Medicare Advantage plans will find it easier to do better than the traditional Medicare program. There's a bunch of other reasons why I think it's important to support the traditional Medicare program by the way. Growth in Medicare Advantage, of course, which you mentioned, has been going on for a long time and in fact predates this and is related to other issues in how Medicare Advantage policy is set, most importantly issues related to uh, the payment of Medicare Advantage plans. So again, I think it's important to revisit Medicare Advantage to try and level the playing field a little bit more for a range of reasons. And there are a lot of problems in the Medicare Advantage program, despite the fact I should add to listeners, there's a ton of value created by Medicare Advantage plans. So please don't take my comments about Medicare Advantage in any way as being a critique of the Medicare Advantage plans or their ability to deliver services to Medicare beneficiaries at a lower cost than in the fee-for-service space. I actually absolutely believe that Medicare Advantage can deliver Part A and B services for a lower cost and that those savings can be used to provide better benefits to Medicare beneficiaries. So there's a lot of value that Medicare Advantage can unlock. That does not mean that they're not overpaid. I think it's important to make some relatively modest adjustments to Medicare Advantage payment and coding policy that will not, in my view, in any way 
negate the fact that there's a lot of value in the Medicare Advantage program. And I think these types of ACOs provide a counterweight by improving the efficiency in fee-for-service, which effectively raises the bar for the Medicare Advantage plans of what they have to beat if they want to siphon people away from fee-for-service. That sounds uh, like a good place uh, to wrap up. Uh, we could talk about that a lot more. Maybe when we uh, have you back the next time, we'll we'll ask you to fix the Medicare Advantage program or, or maybe solve the baseball labor impasse. You could take your pick. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure uh, which is harder, but yes. It is always good to talk. It turns out we have problems across the entire country. I <laughs> All right. Well, uh, uh, for now, though, we'll, we'll wrap this up. And, and Mike, uh, thanks uh, once again for joining us. It's, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure on my side, too. Uh, thanks to our listeners as well, of course. And uh, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Bye.